0: So um, there's a a story by A. A. Milne. It's one of the uh, Winnie the Pooh stories, um, where uh, Pooh happens upon Eeyore, and he's feeling uh, really glum. What else is new? And he's being very cryptic about you know, why he's feeling, uh, feeling glum. It turns out it's his birthday and everybody's forgotten. Um, but he's being, he's being very coy and vague about it. And Pooh thinks that he's trying to ask him a riddle and he's not good at riddles. So he sings a song called Cottleston Pie. He sings the first verse and Eeyore just stares at him blankly because from his perspective, it's just come out of nowhere. And, uh, so Pooh sings, sings the second verse. And after that, your said didn't say specifically that he didn't like it, so he sang the third verse. So you know nobody nobody phoned in and told me uh, that they that they're not keen on the uh, music angle that I'm going to do for this month. So until that happens, I'm going to keep on with the music.
1: You
2: say it's the final kiss. Out, stay, Won't don't you stay know. another day? Don't, don't, you know. don't you know we've come too far now just to go and try to throw it all away? Thought I heard you say you love your love was gonna be here to stay I've only just begun to know you All I can say is won't you stay just one more day
1: Stay, Baby have you got to go Won't you stay another day? Oh, don't leave me alone like this Don't you say it's the final kiss Won't you stay another day?
2: I touch your face while you are asleep don't understand what's going on Good times we had return to haunt me Though it's for you All that I do seems, seems to, to be
1: wrong stay down, stay down, stay down, stay down. Baby, if you've got to go Stay alone. Stay
0: So that was Stay Another Day by the UK boy band East 17. Uh, East 17, uh, not widely known in the United States, were the main competitors to the other UK boy band, Take That, who were also, as far as I'm aware, not widely known in the U.S. Um, Robbie Williams, who is also not widely known in the U.S., Was a member of Take That. What does this song have to do with Christmas? Well, this song is what you call in the UK a Christmas number one. Um, As far as I know, this is not a phenomenon in the United States, but it is a pretty big deal in the UK. A Christmas number one is a song that is number one on the singles charts the week of Christmas. It is very often a Christmas song. For instance, uh, that Slade song here. It is "Merry Christmas." Um, that was a Christmas number one. There's also quite a lot of novelty and holiday themed songs that are attempted attempts at Christmas song Christmas number ones. Um, and even if they don't make it, they they still you know roll them out every year. But occasionally, the Christmas number one is just a hit single and has nothing to do with Christmas. And because it becomes a Christmas number one, it ends up being an honorary Christmas song in the UK. And so they roll this song out every Christmas time, um, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas. What it's actually about, it was written by uh, Tony Mortimer, who is one of the band members. Um, His brother, Ollie committed suicide and so it's originally a song dealing with his grief about his brother's death. Um, then I guess they re rewrote it a bit so that it would be a bog standard breakup song. I- I'm pretty sure, um, he wasn't originally talking about the final kiss and touching your face as you sleep, unless his relationship with his brother is very different than my relationship with my brother. Um, so I sort of have mixed feelings about this song because on the one hand, I, I you know, because it comes from a place of grief and stuff like that, I, I I do want to actually respect that. Um, on the other hand, it's a little bit crass to turn it into a more standard breakup song and make a lot of money off of it. And I'm not actually a fan of boy bands or, you know, vanilla pop music. But, you know, Every I've lived in the UK for 16 years and every year this song gets more and more tolerable to me and it is it is actually a song that I start thinking about every time December rolls around. It's like a Pavlovian response by now. But I thought that would be interesting to the American listeners to talk a little bit about this peculiar British pop culture phenomenon of the Christmas number one, which is usually a Christmas song, but not always. But as David Huddleston said famously in the film Blazing Saddles, never mind that shit, here comes Mongo. By which I mean, let's actually talk about something to do with gaming. So quite a while ago, um, I, uh, did a long winded review of, uh, the role playing game Dark Places and Demogorgons, um and just a just a few days ago i did an even longer review of the black hack 2 um in fact it was so long that for a long time um for a few days nobody uh nobody picked it up um so i i got zero listens i think basically um none of the uh usual podcast distributors would actually take it so I uh I deleted one segment where I talked about some of my problems with the Anchor app. That's a common topic among um people who use Anchor um that the app doesn't work. And that was just enough to finally get it um get it down to a reasonable length. It's still over an hour, but at least now people are actually able to uh to listen to it. So I'll try to not be as long with uh with what I'm going to talk about today, because um, sort of in response to that interview, uh, Bloat Games sent me pretty much their entire catalog of supplementary material, um, along with another printing of the uh, the core rules. So now I have two copies of that. Um, the one that I bought for myself is the uh, the slightly pricier one on uh, on better quality paper um it looks thinner even though it has the same page count because the uh the paper um the higher quality paper sits closer together it's not a it's not as bulky as the pulp um they are both as far as i can tell um glue backed you know where where they gather the uh the signatures cut them off and then stick them into glue in in the paperback cover so there's there's not much of a difference in binding unless possibly one uses a different quality glue um it looks like there's a thicker layer of glue in the the pulp binding the 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 non-premium paperback and obviously the the color of the paper is you know slightly more cream because it's you know it'll be a kind of pulp or recycled paper the cover image is exactly the same the uh, creepy evocative image of a backlit tentacled humanoid coming down a hall so the room that the the hallway is dark and the room that the creature is entering from has a light on so you can't get details of the creature apart from the fact that it has more appendages than it should um it's a great cover by the way and it really evokes the kind of creepiness that this uh, this rule set's going to have the uh the less expensive binding has uh brighter colors like the they're they're muted on the uh, the more expensive binding so it's almost although it's referred to as the blue cover it's really more like cobalt or gray (coughs) or it's definitely bright blue um that's all i'm really going to say about the core rules because i already reviewed those so they also sent me the red cover book, which is Player Options and GM Guide. Um, truth be told, and this is just my, my preference as a gamer, um, but player options tend to be my least favorite type of supplementary material. Um, like I said in my post about Warlocks, my, my preferred option when you're, doing, when you're jiggling with characters is to modify an existing class. Rather than create a new class, um, I just feel like you know, keep it simple. Um, but that's not everybody's boat, you know. So there's there's a lot of there's new skills, um, and I also talked about how I feel about skills in a separate um, in a separate post. In general, I don't use skill based. I don't use skill systems even in 5e. I'm I'm really kind of phasing those out and using them as little as possible. But some people like that and a certain type of play, you know, it enables it enables people to succeed when they don't necessarily have the real world skills. For instance, this one time um I was running a game for a friend of mine and in order to uh in order to get this uh get this secret door open, she had to solve an actual riddle, like there was nothing for it. She had to solve the riddle, and she's just like, "I can't solve riddles, I'm not good at riddles and it was a one on one game, so she didn't get the magic armor that was in that room um and that's kind of a shame, you know um when you're dealing with people who aren't interested in testing their real life skills, you know, maybe they would rather just roll dice um against a skill check. So it's not a bad way to play. It's just not my way of playing. So I'm personally not um, going to employ a lot of extra skills. Um, I am actually kind of intrigued by the new classes, and I'm not usually new, intrigued by new classes. Um, for instance, there's two types of equestrian. Because Dark Places and Demogorgons takes place in um, a suburban town where equestrian ism is a thing now i mean i spent my teenage years in rural colorado so i i you know was also aware of people who are into horses and there's basically two kinds of of people into horses there's the posh one the equestrian show rider now that's a rich person with horses and then there's just the normal equestrian rider that's just a person who has horses and likes horses and again like i I knew both types of people when I was in high school, the people who were, you know, posh horse people and the people who just had horses because they've always had horses. Um, and they both love horses just as much. And they both know just as much about horses, but you know, one's rich and one's not. I think, you know, people who don't grow up around horses assume that everybody who has horses is rich, but that's not the case. There are still plenty of ordinary people who have horses in rural America. um, so, you know, there's quite a lot of uh, of of these uh, extra classes that I think, you know, can bring a good flavor to the game. And, you know, none of them are very overpowered or anything. Um, there's a level progression that goes up to level 7 rather than level 5. Um, and there's suggestions on how to uh, transfer the... Uh, the core classes into a seven level progression rather than a five level progression. I think personally for some of these, if I felt like they were sort of special or, or a little bit more powerful than the standard classes, I would maybe keep them as a seven level progression, but keep the core ones as five in, in the way that swords and wizardry continual light has a different, uh, a different amount of uh, adventure points. You need to level up if you're going to play something like a paladin I think, you know, say, okay, you can play these special things, but it's going to take you longer to advance. Or I may save that for if I'm going to use the magic classes. Um, for instance, there's like two types of witches, the black witch and the nature witch, Oh, there's three types, the white witch as well, um, and the voodoo practitioner. So, I mean, if you want to put in a little actual magic into your game, there's these options, which, you know, they sit alongside the uh, mm-hmm. optional... Um, psionic classes that were already in there um again you know you don't have to i think for my vision of running this game i would still probably keep it pretty grounded in the real world like not have a lot of magic and special powers that the pcs have access to um but if you do want to have that then it's here and you know they they're spells and familiars and potion potion making levels and th- or rules and things like that as well so the bulk of the book though is a lot of charts some of which are meant to be rolled randomly on but they're they're uh, charts for your clothing and appearance they're charts for obsessions like current pop culture obsessions that you could have Including music, films, all the different genres of films, um, favorite quotes, television shows, game shows. Um, I was a really big fan of all the random tables that uh, that list the cultural elements of the '80s in the core book, and so there's just more of that. Um, and it can, you know, you can use them as random tables and roll randomly on them when you're creating your character and and find out you know, like roll and say, oh, I'm obsessed with the Thundercats, you know, or you can choose it yourself if you really want to build something bespoke. But it's actually just a lot of fun to just read through those lists, um, just like in the core rule book, and just kind of remember, just kind of get that nostalgia going. And it can, it, I imagine it's going to be really useful when trying to build the right mood, you know, the, the authentic 80s mood. And once again, it's worth mentioning that this this game is firmly rooted in the 80s. It's not like if if you were gonna set it in a different era, then all of this information becomes irrelevant, and you have to generate your own. For if you want to do it in the 60s or the 70s or the or the 90s, which is now also a nostalgia period, um, so you know keep that in mind. Like if you're gonna play Dark Places and Demogorgons, the the work they put into it is definitely to make it an 80s thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, it's probably my, it's probably the book I'll use least of the, uh, the, the ones that they sent me, but that's just my style. I don't like to put in a lot of extra options and mechanics, although I will probably skim through or read through the, uh, the random tables, um, quite a, quite a bit in prepping, uh, adventures. But what I was really impressed with are the source books that they sent. Uh, the, The werewolf source book, the vampire source book, the ghost hunters handbook, and the UFO investigators handbook. So these are extra material that will help you run a Dark Places and Demogorgons game that is focused on a certain type of supernatural creature. And these are they're they're not very um, they're not very big they're they're so there's not a lot of material in them um, you won't be like overloaded with material but they what's in here is really good um, different takes for instance on the werewolf lycanthropy as a curse lycanthropy as a disease so you can decide how you're gonna run werewolves like what what do you think is gonna mechanically drive the werewolves in your story. <clears throat> There's rules for randomly generating a werewolf um giving it certain weaknesses so you this this is the special weaknesses table the werewolf might not be might not be uh, susceptible to silver bullets the way that the traditional werewolf is you can you can roll a d6 the option 6 is basically the uh, gm or player chooses but the other options are wolfsbane, fire, sunlight and oak and that's in addition to silver. So, if you were going to you could use that to surprise your players like they think oh we need to get something silver and it turns out that something else is what you need to defeat the uh defeat the werewolf. I always like uh when you can surprise people. Um again there's the transformation transformation conditions table so maybe it's not the full moon that makes the the werewolf transform the sight of blood is one of the options inflicted damage anger so the werewolf is kind of like the incredible hulk like don't get him angry he turns into a werewolf fear that's uh you know almost like the reverse of anger and again the the sixth one is is the gm choice then there are some scenarios for werewolves, and uh they're really good they're nice and short they're all they're they're all basically like a couple of pages long it's just enough to let you know the scenario and and kind of more or less how to run it, but it leaves a lot of room for you to make it your own and fit it around the campaign that you're actually running and your players um there's different uh different takes of werewolves and it reprints the silver bullets and uh the teenage werewolf um that you get in the um in the uh the core rules. So you still have those two options. But basically this this little booklet here, if you're gonna run a werewolf campaign, you know, you you have that on the table and you're good to go. And then you got a similar thing for the vampires. Um what stands out to me about um the vampire source book is that it gives lots of different types of vampire. So, you've got charismatic vampires. You've got uh powerful Dracula-style vampires. You've got gross um nasty undead types. You've got the Lost Boys type vampires. Um, the Nosferatu one um, doesn't actually drink human blood; it drinks um, animal blood. There's the incorporeal style vampire, the uh, the the blood spirit. Now that this one needs to uh needs to drink blood in order to keep look it's a it's a female and it needs to drink blood in order to keep looking uh young so it's initially perceived as two people a young woman and her elderly mother so there's a little bit of carmilla going on there or a little bit of uh, countess bathory going on in there um it also reminds me a little bit of this uh obscure in fact it was betty davis's last film although in that case they were witches um there were two witches, um, and they had one body. So one of them would inhabit the familiar, the cat, while the other one inhabited the human body. And when it was the older witch, she appeared as an older woman. And when it was the younger one, she appeared as a younger woman. There's the Thrall Keeper. So he's more of like the charismatic style vampire who's got... um, a section of the town, like a like a a suburban area near the main town, he's got kind of got them all under his control. So that's probably more of an investigation, uh, type. If you use the Nosferatu one, there's very little chance that the uh, the PCs themselves are going to be attacked by the Nosferatu. It's going to be mainly attacking animals. So you there there's a potential here to run a lot of vampire adventures and. St- put them up in difficulty. So you run like the Nosferatu one at level one. And then as they level up, they get, they get more and more powerful until they're ready to challenge the most powerful of the vampires, which is, um, I believe the ancient one, um, or even better. Don't run all of them in the, in a row, you know, run, run a low level vampire one and a low level werewolf one, and maybe a couple of things, of your own device or of uh from the core rules and come back to the vampires a bit later and they'll be surprised because the next vampire will work slightly differently and they'll have to figure out the new mechanics, run a different werewolf one, maybe a type of werewolf that isn't susceptible to silver. There's a lot of good potential there. Um so I was very I was very impressed with that. And again I was also very impressed with the scenario writing because um there's there's enough information that you know what you're going to need to run it but they haven't stepped on your toes or overloaded you with information so you're you know you can you can read through it really quickly fill in the blanks yourself and have something that will be entertaining and yet easy to run because i always find personally it's easier to rep- it's easy to remember the details that i made up than the ones that I read in somebody else's scenario. Um, which is one of the reasons why I'm not usually happy with the really long hardcover, uh, D and D adventures that have a lot of lore and background and stuff. Cause I, I never remember those things at the table. And then the ghost hunters handbook takes a different, um, a different approach. It's slightly thicker. So it's not, it's, it's less like a booklet. It actually has like a flat spine. um, and it has a, a map of the Winter Hills Asylum on Taylor's Lake, the uh, the island in Taylor's Lake. And so that whole area is rife with uh, ghost activity. And there's like a local ghost hunting group that likes to investigate bits of that. And teenagers go there and dare each other to hang out there. So that's detailed. So it's another extra area. Um, and then there's lots of again there's lots of different types of ghosts poltergeists um phantoms they, they all have sort of different um different characteristics and different uh challenges and uh one thing in particular was the description of the asylum itself which is now closed and is apparently haunted <clears throat> You obviously don't have to do this, but that could be a place to run a a more or less traditional dungeon crawl, but in this, you know, somewhat like realistic modern world uh, context. And I especially remembered that because uh, before Gary Gygax moved to Lake Geneva, he actually was he actually spent his childhood in Chicago, and there was an abandoned um, sanitarium there that uh kids used to sneak into and one day he and some of his friends went along with some older friends and some flashlights and you know the building was condemned and in a poor state and they really shouldn't have been in there it was totally dangerous and it was very very creepy um but yeah they would be crawling through all these abandoned areas and you know there were unstable floors and things and um he he. Basically, he later said that that was a major influence on his conception of the dungeon crawl, and why he found the dungeon crawl scenario so uh, so intriguing and so enthralling was it reminded him of the thrill he got as a kid exploring that abandoned uh, sanitarium. So you could kind of recreate that sort of thing, except you can put real ghosts in there. Um, another great thing about the Ghost Hunters Handbook is that. Um it uses ghosts more or less the way I like to use ghosts, you know, like when I'm running say traditional D&D, I don't use ghosts per se as uh combat enemies. You have things like specters and wraiths and shadows and things for that. If I'm going to just call something a ghost, it's going to have be it's going to maybe have more of a role playing uh element to it. Um and, and there there are options like that where, where the ghost maybe wants something. And instead of fighting the ghost, you maybe want to help the ghost find peace by, you know, I don't know, fulfilling something or bringing something to justice or something like that. On the other hand, there are also some good stuff um, like... Um, Talismans that will protect you from incorporeal attacks or salt rings and things. And there's a ghost hunter's kit detailed in the equipment and stuff like that. So, um, I think the ghost hunter's one, uh, has more potential to. Ha- to run a campaign completely focused on ghosts because that that could be the thing is you could say, well, this town is haunted or has lots of haunted areas and we will we'll be paranormal investigators or teenagers who want to be paranormal investigators. And it could just be about all the different hauntings in this area. Whereas I think if there were a lot of vampires active in Jefferson town at the same time, that might get a little bit suspicious. And then the UFO hunter, the UFO or investigators handbook is in a similar way. It's got a lot of different takes on aliens. There's a UFO enthusiast um organization in the town and lots of different UFO hotspots and alien activities. There's some characters, um, NPCs in here detailed that are are, you know, very much um inspired by like the X-Files, even though that's not an eighties thing. Although the X Files is not it is not an eighties show and is therefore it <clears throat> it would be anachronistic in this game. I actually from the first time I read the core rule books, um, I definitely wanted to take like a, a nod from the uh the X Files for this in the suggestion that you run this as a monster of the week. Um, type of game, you know, so every session you get there and you say, okay, you know, what's the, what's the monster and the mystery that we're going after this time. I just found that right away that made sense to me. And it reminded me of what are now my favorite X-Files episodes, um, which are the, the monster of the week ones. Um, back in the day when I was younger, I was interested in seeing where the mythology episodes went. So I was always really happy when there was a mythology episode, but to be honest, the X-Files mythology never really went anywhere. It's maybe not quite the mess that like Lost is, but it uh, it 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 didn't live up to its early potential. So when I look back, I feel like the best um episodes of the X-Files are when they're just investigating a random supernatural occurrence that isn't particularly connected to anything else they've ever investigated. And uh, so, yeah, when uh, <laughs> when I read that monster of the week, I was like, yeah, like all the best X-Files episodes. And also it's, it will give you a really good um, pattern for your prep, you know, to just try to try to get a scenario that, you know, you can get through in one session and then the next week have a different monster, you know. Um, and I think both the ghosts and the UFOs, I feel like there's more potential to keep doing ghosts and keep doing UFOs without it getting old. Whereas I feel like if you just ran vampire after vampire after vampire, personally, I feel like that would, um, that would get a little bit repetitive. And that's why I suggest if you're going to go that way, you should stagger them and, do a vampire and then a werewolf and then one of the other things in the core rule book. Cause there's a lot, I mean the chupacabras and stuff and there's a lot of the monsters in there that are kind of part of the town's mythology. But I feel like you could, you could run a, you could run a game as ghost hunters or as UFO hunters or as ghost and UFO hunters. And that would feel like a, an interesting and cohesive campaign. They also sent me the Jefferson Town setting guide. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about that separately. Um, just cuz that's that's a uh, a much thicker book and um has quite a quite a lot of detailed information about the setting. Anyways, um that's my D&D December <clears throat> podcast for today. I am not doing the prompt because today's prompt is Fighters and Wizards, and I I don't think I want to spend an entire week talking about character classes. I feel like that's a pretty vanilla thing to talk about if you're going to talk about D&D. There's other things. Anyways, until next time, which may be tomorrow, play well and let the dice roll. No. Play well and let the dice fall where they may. One of these days I'm going to remember my own tagline. Today's episode of DM Dad was brought to you by Harrison's 16-penny nails. When you're building your house or mending your kid's soapbox racer, only the finest materials will do. So you need Harrison's 16-penny nails. Forged from the ideal mixture of carbon and iron, Harrison's 16-penny nails are durable and won't bend or break. So when you're ready to work with iron and wood like a real man, instead of sitting at the table like a child rolling funny dice and pretending to be an elf with a magic sword, reach for the best. Reach for Harrison's 16-penny nails. Harrison's, you hit the nail on the head.